Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on June 22nd, 2022. Last week's FOMC statement included the notable sentence that the Federal Reserve's, quote, commitment to restoring price stability is unconditional, unquote. This is the kind of statement that reverberates, because while inflation may be in the crosshairs, the policy moves that are pointed at it will affect everything, the whole economy, markets, portfolio decisions, individuals' lives. At the same time, there are so many things that the Fed cannot change or that will have an exogenous impact on their efforts, such as the war in Ukraine, the shutdowns in China, and supply chain shocks throughout the economy. What does this confluence of events mean for economic growth? Is now a good time to extend duration? What is the yield curve telling us? What's next for policy? Helping us to make sense of all this is Brian Smedley, Chief Economist of Guggenheim Investments and the head of our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Before joining Guggenheim in 2015, Brian was head of short rates research at B of A Merrill and a senior official at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Let's listen in. Welcome, Brian, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Now, Brian, uh, things are moving very quickly right now um, on the data front, on the policy front, and markets are very volatile. So much is going on, but let's dive right in with policy. What exactly was in the FOMC statement that was released on June 15th, and was it what you expected? Yeah, sure. So starting with the decision of the FOMC to raise interest rates, they increased the federal funds target by three quarters of a percentage point. And that 75 basis point rise was was the largest we've seen in about 28 years. The other important message that came through was that the FOMC is highly attentive to inflation risks, as they said. They also went on to say that the committee is strongly committed to returning inflation to its 2% objective. They mentioned the difficulties in, you know, in terms of inflation pressure coming from China uh, lockdowns and uh, the war in Ukraine. But the message was clear that the FOMC is committed to taking aggressive action to try to bring inflation back to target. And uh, was it what you expected, comparing what you were expecting before the CPI uh, release and and then what happened uh, afterwards? Uh, This was uh, last Friday, I believe. Before the CPI that came out uh, a week ago, we were expecting the FOMC to raise the funds rate by a half a percentage point. And, uh, and that we expected to occur again in July and at the September meetings. Once we got a, a red hot CPI print for the month of May, that started to um, change our perception of the risks for the June policy statement. Uh, we also shortly after that got uh, an important uh, data point from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment release. And that showed uh, the preliminary release for the month of June. That showed an uptick in the longer run inflation expectation of consumers. And so that number we had a feeling combined with the hot CPI report for May was likely to tilt things in favor of a 75 basis point increase. Uh, and that view was later confirmed when we got media reports from the Wall Street Journal, Journal and other outlets uh, indicating that the FOMC was likely to consider uh, uh, 
a supersized 75 basis point move. So by the time we got to the meeting, um, a 75 basis point hike was essentially fully priced into the market and that I think had become the consensus expectation. So this was a really quick change in sentiment, certainly by mar of market expectations, but also in what the Fed was going to do. So they must have gotten a lot of questions. The Chair Powell's got a lot of questions in the press conference. Did you, did you hear any clarifying information about where they're, where the Fed is, is at you know, strategy-wise uh, in the press conference? Absolutely. We got a lot of information in the press conference. So let's start with uh, the, the guidance that we received from Chair Powell on uh, the potential next step steps for the Fed funds target. He suggested that at the upcoming meeting in July in six weeks, they uh, are likely to consider either a 50 or a 75 basis point hike. Um, that'll be driven by the data, financial conditions, other considerations. But um, you know, right now the market is leaning pretty heavily in favor of pricing in a 75 basis point increase again for July. And we've seen some support for that in subsequent comments by some Fed officials. For example, President Kashkari from uh, Minneapolis has come out and say, said to say that he would he would likely support that uh, 75 basis point move. We also got important information in terms of what's how the Fed is incorporating into its policy framework this extraordinary commodity supply shock, uh, which is of course um, centered on the oil and refined products markets globally, but also food and agricultural commodities broadly. Uh, this is putting enormous strain on the global economy and at a time when inflation is already running above central bank targets here and around the world, when you have the added upward pressure of a commodity price shock, that really puts strain on central bank credibility and is, is forcing the Fed and others to tighten more aggressively and communicate a more aggressive tightening path in the future than they otherwise would need to do. So we heard from Chair Powell an acknowledgement that you know, even though their preferred measure of inflation is core PCE or trimmed mean PCE, which tends to be more subdued, he acknowledged that inflation expectations and, you know, news coverage really of, of the inflation story are driven by headline CPI. Uh, and so the Fed really is boxed into a corner and doesn't have much choice other, to, other than to, um, you know, move policy in the direction that's dictated by the trends in global commodity markets, among other things. I feel like the press conference is, is becoming more important, particularly in times like this. And there are many tools of monetary policy, but I think the least understood is probably communications, that tool. So how is the, the June 15th FOMC statement and the press conference, how does this work as part of the execution of monetary policy? I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, one of the most powerful tools the Fed has is its ability to communicate to the markets and the general public its intentions and its expectations for the economy and the likely path of policy. And, and so that we, we call the appropriate path of monetary policy for a given economic uh, outcome, the reaction function. And so this came into play in the, in the last week after we got the CPI report that we just discussed and the inflation expectations number markets knew when we when when that data came out that uh you know we needed to price in uh, a more hawkish path for the fed because the fed's reaction function stipulates that they you know they've got to bring inflation down even if there are costs to that so another another area where i would point to the power of communication is you know if you go back uh, a little less than six months ago at the start of the year we got the december fomc meeting minutes came out beginning of january 
And that was the first time we got an indication from the committee that they were thinking about pivoting really quickly from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening and starting to shrink the balance sheet fairly soon. And from that point on, we got increased communication from the Fed to suggest that they were looking to shrink the balance sheet uh, at a faster pace than they did in the last cycle. And the intent was also very key. They communicated an intention to, you know, along with the increasing the Fed funds target, to tighten financial conditions in order to slow the economy, in order to maintain, you know, steady inflation expectations and bring actual inflation down to target. And that, that set of uh, communications and intentions has been very powerful in tightening financial conditions well before, uh, you know, the first um, maturity of, 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 of the Fed's portfolio rolled off during quantitative tightening uh, in the last couple of weeks. That's fascinating. And, and in the latest iteration, I guess we cannot discount the power of the back channel to the press. You know, the, the CPI comes out on Friday. Monday, these stories are in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I'm, sh I'm sure there was some kind of coordination, although we'll never be sure. But those stories help to set expectations appropriately for a, 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 a hike that was more than 50. Uh, would you agree with that? I do agree with that. I think, um, you know, the, the Fed um, appeared to take steps to you know, help markets set up for uh, a 75 basis point rate hike at the June meeting by, you know, uh, communicating that likelihood to the Wall Street Journal and apparently other news outlets. So um, there was a big reaction when that story came out, uh, for sure. And I think that, you know, as a result, we saw a smaller reaction on the day of the, the announcement than we would have otherwise seen. So um, it's a way for the Fed to, as you said, to steer market pricing and expectations in a direction that the Fed feels is appropriate. Yeah, I mean, as our global CIO tweeted uh, on that Monday before the uh, FOMC statement, uh, that 75 basis points hit was already kind of baked in. It was an ugly day in the market, but it happened on Monday, not on Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, that, let's move away from the actual policy decision for a minute, and let's dive a little deeper into why the Fed made this decision. Uh, what economic situation is driving their policy moves? Yeah, if we take a step back and think about um, you know, what's led us to this point, uh, really an extraordinary point in, in history, we've got a situation where aggregate demand is running far above potential, and, uh, and we've seen really robust demand growth. And, at, and that's come at a time when the supply side of the economy has faced several setbacks. We have a, a labor shortage, we have a housing shortage, a car shortage, uh, and commodity shortages driven by the war in Ukraine and, and weather events and other factors. So, and that's, you know, to say nothing of uh, the COVID zero policy in China that's affecting trade flows and logistics and, and, um, and our ability to source, you know, key products uh, in our market. So that's putting upward pressure on inflation. And that inflation pressure is reinforced by the tightness in the labor market uh, with, with aggregate demand running far above what we can sustain over time. The labor market has tightened steadily in the last couple of years. And we've now got an unemployment rate at 3.6% and, uh, and we've got a ratio of job openings to unemployed workers that sits at 1.9, uh, nearly two jobs available for every one unemployed worker in the country. That's, uh, that's an extraordinary uh, uh, development that we've not seen in the history of that data series. So 
Uh, that's putting upward pressure on wages, making it difficult for employers to attract and retain employees. And, uh, and again, this is furthering the, uh, uh, the trend of inflation running above the 2% target the Fed is, um, has set. Given the situation, uh, Brian, you know, what's your view on how monetary policy could play out from here and its effectiveness in, in ameliorating some of these pressures? We, uh, we've been expecting the Fed to reach a 3% Fed funds rate by the end of 2022. Now that they seem to be front-loading the hikes a little bit, you know, it's, it, it's possible that they get to that place a little bit sooner. If they deliver another 75 basis point hike at the July meeting, uh, that's going to be determined by, again, economic data and how market conditions evolve. But um, nevertheless, we think that given how quickly the Fed is, has pivoted its policy stance and given how much financial conditions have tightened uh, and the fact that you've got this, uh, again, commodity price shock that's, that is um, uh, really crimping purchasing power and destroying demand in other parts of the economy, we think we're going to see pretty imminently uh, a, a deeper slowdown in economic activity and also uh, more convincing signs of a slowdown in inflation. Uh, you know, we've heard recently from major retailers like Walmart and Target uh, that they're running very high levels of inventories. Demand has pulled back uh, for goods consumption. We saw that in the latest retail sales report, which missed to the downside. And so we're expecting to see, you know, major discounts coming through from retailers around the country. And, and that's just kind of emblematic of, of the general trend we expect of cooling inflation uh, now that, again, financial conditions have tightened and the Fed has made it clear um, that they're looking to slow things down. How does uh, the Fed balance sheet runoff uh, a part of the equation play into this uh, policy forward going forward? Yeah, so the Fed is, is, um, has, for the next uh, few months, two and a half months now to go, uh, the Fed is um, allowing $45 billion a month in treasuries and mortgages to mature without reinvesting. And then that will step up to a combined $95 billion and run at that pace um, to the indefinite future. You know, the mortgage component, uh, we think, will, will undershoot the caps because mortgage prepayment speeds are going to be coming in lower and that will mean that the, you know, the paydowns on the mortgage uh, book are going to be less than the caps. But um, that's basically going to be running alongside the hiking cycle. And the FOMC, I think, and the staff are thinking about a multi-year process, maybe a few years, uh, where the balance sheet shrinks passively and, uh, and eventually gets to some no level of quote-unquote normal size. And uh, our expectation is that the the Fed is actually not going to have that much time uh, to shrink the balance sheet before it's time to pivot the policy stance and provide more accommodation uh, to ward off an economic downturn. So we have penciled in balance sheet runoff to continue for the next um, you know, year plus into the latter part of 2023, at which point we think they're going to shut off balance sheet runoff and quantitative tightening you know, will come to an end as the Fed begins, we think, to start cutting rates ahead of, um, you know, clear signs that the economy is slipping into recession. But when, when, it, when it comes to the shrinking of the balance sheet, uh, an important factor there is the size of the federal budget deficit. How is that playing into your view going forward? Well, well the shrinkage of the Fed's balance sheet gets a lot of attention in, in the sense that it means that the, the Treasury is going to have to issue more debt 
to redeem what the Fed is holding and, and private investors are going to have to make up the difference. But what's, I think, less appreciated um, among market participants is that uh, we've got a fiscal boom that is um, you know, resulting in a shrinking deficit. And we've got you know, pandemic-related spending coming down and uh, revenues are rising rapidly. So um, you know, if you look at it as a percent of GDP, we peaked at almost a 19% of GDP deficit a little more than a year ago. That's come down to about 5% of GDP now in the last 12 months. In dollar terms, we peaked at over $4 trillion on a trailing 12-month basis. That's now down to $1.1 trillion. And a lot of that move has come uh, just in the last uh, six months. So um, that means that the Treasury Department is um, not going to have to issue as much debt to fund the deficit as they projected and as uh, people have been expecting. So that's important because it helps to offset the amount of Treasury supply that the Treasury Department needs to issue to the public to, um, you know, to account for the deficit and the quantitative tightening. Jay Powell was pretty emphatic in his press conference answer that the Fed is not working to put the economy into recession. Uh, do you think that's an, a disingenuous answer? Uh, and what is your view now on the timing of a recession? Well, what I, what I do think is that the Fed is, I'm sure, very well aware that recession risks over the next one, two, three years are very high. And I think they know that there is a very difficult tightrope to walk to try to bring inflation down, to try to you know, cool the labor market a little bit, but not take things too far to where we have a recession and, and, um, uh, and then they have to backtrack. But um, I think you know, he was very clear that they are willing to do whatever it takes to bring inflation back down to target, that that is really their, their, uh, their first and foremost objective right now. And I think you know, reading in between the lines, it was pretty clear uh, that the Fed is saying that they're willing to you know, put the economy into a recession if that's what it takes to bring inflation to target so that they don't sacrifice uh, their inflation credibility because if, that, you know, if the Fed's credibility were you know, eroded to a certain point, that the cost of that over the long term would be very high. Um, and so they're willing to take some short-term pain if that's what's required uh, to bring inflation back down to target. Uh, you know, what's your, the recession dashboard telling you and, uh, and, and your recession probability model? Well, our recession forecasting tools are telling us that we're clearly in the later stages of the expansion and that recession risks are rising over the next one to two years. Um, you know, we look at a labor market that is very tight and an unemployment rate that's below what we can sustain. Uh, we see the Fed tightening policy, you know, pretty aggressively here to try to bring real interest rates up. We see a yield curve that's flattening in a way that suggests that policy is moving toward neutral and, you know, eventually to a probably restrictive stance. And economic data is beginning to slow. Uh, first quarter GDP was negative. Uh, we don't read too much into that because it was a lot of noise from, you know, net exports and inventories, but GDP in the second quarter looks like it's going to be pretty weak as well. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the trend of labor market improvement is showing clear signs of slowing, which is, you know, a kind of early leading indicator that the economy, you know, with some time, uh, maybe stalling out and could eventually turn into a downturn. So, um, a lot of our, you know, recession forecasting tools are lining up to sell to tell us that, you know, um, while the risk of a recession in the next several quarters is probably fairly low, uh, if you look out one to two years, so latter part of 2023 and 
first half of 2024, recession risk is quite high. So that's our, our current baseline uh, that we're only you know roughly 18 months perhaps away from the official start of a recession. The market in general has been volatile to say the least. Um, while it has seemed as if the Fed uh, has been behind the curve and is fighting to get ahead of it, the market has seemed to be ahead of the curve in discounting the future course of policy and at a fairly rapid rate, which is painful. What are your thoughts on market performance, uh, you know, kind of leading up to and following the FOMC decision? Is, is the, has the market figured it out? Well, I think the market um, you know, has been trading quite defensively you know, over the last um, six months in particular. We've seen longer duration parts of the of the equity market. So, you know, high growth tech, for example, uh, has been hit very, very hard, particularly smaller capitalization, but also the big mega cap names. We've seen defensive sectors such as healthcare uh, outperform. Energy has also been a clear winner, and obviously that's related to the the ongoing rise in um, in energy prices. So, I think you know the market is trading with a defensive tone. It is. You know, it's it's pricing and I think a rising risk of recession and and uh, restrictive monetary policy. If we look at what's happening in credit markets, there's a similar theme where credit spreads have widened uh, across sectors. And uh, you know, we we're looking now at a situation where most credit sectors are. You know, if we look at the historical percentile of spreads, you know, most sectors are seeing spreads in the 60th to 80th percentile range, which is which is to say that you know. 60 to 80% of the time spreads are tighter than they are now, depending on the sector. So um, that's clearly, uh, you know, a meaningful degree of spread widening in, a, in, in the last, you know, just six months. And uh, so the market is, is starting to set up for uh, a hawkish Fed that might uh, engineer at a minimum, a pretty significant growth slowdown and possibly a recession. What is the yield curve telling us now? It's been shifting as well. Well, that's right. The yield curve has flattened quite a bit. And, um, you know, in fact, we've seen uh, inversions uh, take place in different parts of the treasury curve. So, um, you know, I think what we see in the treasury curve is that, you know, long-term interest rates uh, should be more guided by, you know, longer run neutral rate considerations, um, which is to say, you know, over time, you know, the factors that have kept long-term interest rates low for the last several decades, we think are still intact. Uh, but we have a situation today where, uh, because of extraordinary fiscal stimulus and all the supply shocks that we've just discussed, uh, monetary policy needs to move into a restrictive territory to try to bring the economy you know, back into equilibrium and address some of these imbalances so that inflation can, can come back to target. And that is going to require a higher level of short-term interest rates than what would be quote unquote normal in equilibrium or over the longer term. So that is a recipe for a flat curve today and you know six months from now, an inverted yield curve. Um, and sure enough, if you look at the forward curve, the market is pricing in an inversion, a deeper inversion uh, six to 12 months from now and is pricing you know, a meaningful degree of interest rate cuts uh, starting in 2023 and continuing into the following year. Brian, related to that is uh, the possibility of a stagflation scenario. Uh, so what happens to the long end when it's caught between inflation on the one hand and a, and a slowing economy on the other? Which is going to obtain? What's going to happen to the long end? Well, the long end, I think, is, uh, is going to take a cue from what's happening you know, in other assets. And so you know, recently we've seen Stocks, um, you know, stocks get hit 
and uh, and I think that's contributed to the flattening of the yield curve and the outperformance of, of the back end. Uh, the Fed is hawkish, which is pushing up, you know, the front end of the curve. Um, but um, you know, at the same time, Fed hawkishness is is telling us that, you know, again, recession risks are rising. They're willing to put the economy into recession to get the job done, and uh, and stocks have um, you know have sold off pretty hard on on the back of that. So, you know, that's uh, that's contributed to the flattening and the outperformance of the back end. So we actually think here with with as much Fed tightening as priced in, um, and we've got you know Treasury yields up in the three and a quarter to three and a half percent range in you know in the last week, we think that's uh, the market's pretty fully priced, and we think we're at or near the you know probably peak levels for, certainly for longer end Treasuries that we expect to see for this cycle. Now, what key indicators are you watching right now? And will you be watching to determine the success and efficacy of monetary policy, uh, as well as, as how it relates to the reaction function of the Fed? What are they looking at? Right. Well, uh, Chair Powell has put several key indicators on our radar in his you know press conferences in the last several months. Uh, he's very focused on the level of job openings and wanting to see demand for labor cool off from you know exceptionally hot levels. Uh, he's also talked about wage growth. Uh, our preferred wage measure is the uh, employment cost index that only comes out quarterly. So um, we'd have to look at more high frequency measures to gauge, you know, in the interim what's happening. And, and we have seen some cooling off in average hourly earnings in recent months. We'll also be looking at, you know, measures of inflation expectations. He, we, you know, we discussed the University of Michigan report that caught his attention uh, from, from last Friday's print. Uh, we'll be looking for an update to that next week. But, um, you know, longer term, the, the story of inflation expectations is really critical. Um, the Fed is very defensive right now in the way they communicate to the public because policy has been exceptionally accommodative at a time when inflation's you know at the highest in 40 years. Uh, so they're very sensitive to the risk that inflation expectations could become anchored. And as this inflation story lingers, you know, goes on and on, there's a risk that inflation expectations rise. Uh, in, you know, to indicate an erosion of the Fed's credibility. So um, we've got, you know, several measures, both market measures and survey measures that we'll be watching closely to, to see if that, uh, to see if what the Fed has done uh, can help to contain inflation expectations at, at appropriate levels. Well, we'll watch along with you. Now, there are a couple of exogenous forces that uh, you alluded to earlier, but we should probably discuss uh, a little bit uh, more detail including, you know, the price of oil is an important exogenous force, uh, the situation in China with their lockdowns, as well as, you know, the, the effects of the war in Ukraine uh, on global supply chains. We can't downplay that as well. What are the repercussions of these types of issues on policymaking and on global economies? Well, it's, it's um, incredibly challenging um, for policymakers, and of course, heartbreaking to see the destruction and death um, in Ukraine today. But um, from a policy standpoint, you know, there's not much that the Fed or other central banks can do to try to address, you know, the shortage of key commodities in the global market. So, uh, what they have to try to do is is avoid the so-called second round effects, where a spike in commodity prices feeds through into inflation expectations, and that rise in expectations feeds through into actual wage and price setting behavior, in turn reinforcing and amplifying, you know, the commodity price shock in the inflation data. But if we, you know, if we look at what's happening in the energy markets, it's extraordinary to see how uh, we've got a situation today with very low 
uh, inventories. Even before the war in Ukraine broke out, we have in the United States, very low level of commercial crude inventories. Uh, and we've got gasoline stocks and other, you know, uh, fuel oils are running at very low levels of inventories. And by the way, that's even with the Fed releasing uh, uh, a very high volume of reserves from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And that's with China, you know, experiencing a sequence of lockdowns in important cities. So the oil market is very, very tight, uh, particularly on the product side. And even with refinery utilization running at very high levels compared to historical uh, experience, we've got you know, very, very wide crack spreads, uh, which is a term we used to describe you know, the profitability of refining a barrel of oil and selling uh, you know, the products on the other side, gasoline, diesel, heating oil, jet fuel, et cetera. Um, so the refining, uh, you know, the, the, the refining log jams are you know, adding even more, even more difficulty on top of a tight physical crude oil market. Obviously, the, the Fed is not operating in a vacuum, and you know, or what we do here affects other countries, and we are seeing monetary policy changing really around the world. You know, give it, go around the world, and, and tell us what you're seeing from other uh, important central banks, and you know, some of the issues have been bubbling up there. Right. Um, yeah. It's you know, the the Fed is really, you know, the central bank of the world in 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 a to a large degree. And uh, when the Fed, you know, turns more hawkish as they've done, um, that puts upward pressure on the dollar, you know, unless and until other central banks, you know, take actions to offset what the Fed is doing. Um, you know, that varies on a case by case basis, depending on terms of trade shocks and how they affect different countries and, uh, and so forth. But, you know, uh, in an overall sense, uh, as the Fed is pivoted to a much more aggressive uh, policy stance, um, that's put uh, pressure on other currencies to weaken against the dollar, and that has in turn uh, forced several other central banks to move off the sidelines and start to raise interest rates to ward off uh, some erosion of inflation expectations in their own countries because of the fact that currency weakness may be compounding underlying inflation pressures uh, that already exist. So yeah, if you look at the Swiss National Bank just in the last week, SMB raised interest rates by 50 basis points. You know, this has been, they've been one of the most dovish uh, central banks with a very, very easy policy framework for, you know, better part of 15 years. And to see that shift now is, um, is extraordinary testament to, um, you know, the, the unusual world we're living in. Uh, the European Central Bank is, is teeing up to, uh, to hike uh, above zero uh, in the coming months and potentially 50 basis point hike at the September meeting. So uh, that's contributed to a big rise in European bond yields. And it's been amplified in the periphery by the fact that, you know, the ECB purchases uh, have not been there to support uh, peripheral bonds as they have in a big, big way in recent years. So that's another challenge that the ECB faces that's sort of unique to them because they need to try to contain market, you know, limit market fragmentation across the Eurozone members, and it ensured good functioning of markets. And there's been pretty clear signs in recent weeks that there, you know, things have been moving in the wrong direction. So um, we do expect the ECB in time to, you know, develop a tool that they could use to, you know, to come in and, um, and backstop bond markets in several key, you know, peripheral countries such as Italy. If you look at, um, at Japan, you know, Japan has really held their ground uh, at their meeting this week. There was a lot of speculation that they might have to abandon or modify yield curve control. They've been 
targeting since 2016, uh, you know, interest rates in the 10-year tenor around zero, they've, they've got a tolerance band there that extends uh, up to, you know, plus and minus 25 basis points. So 10-year JGB yields have been trading right up to, if not a bit beyond the 25 basis point uh, target range. And the BOJ was very clear at their meeting that they intend to hold the line and they took steps to squeeze the shorts in the bond market uh, and punish them in a, in a way. For uh, for questioning, you know the durability of their um, of their yield curve control framework, uh, and so you know it seems that they're willing to allow the yen to weaken. Uh, they jawboned um, you know the FX market as well uh, to try to you know limit the extent of yen weakness on the back of that. But I think the key message from the BOJ is um, they feel like they've got a lot of firepower and a lot of determination to continue to hold the line and maintain a really easy policy stance. Um, let me just wrap up with a few words on China where. You know, China is in a recession now. Picture there is is really not good. We know, you know, going back to last fall, big concerns then about the property market and, um, you know, Chinese growth and the financial system are very dependent on a healthy property market. That foundation has been crumbling over the last year. And uh, that's been exacerbated this year by a big slowdown in economic activity and uh, COVID-related lockdowns. So if you look at housing sales specifically, you know, housing sales in the 30, in 30 major cities across China are down 50% from where they were this time last year. Uh, that's a significant hit to a really key sector of China's economy. And, and along the same lines, we saw, you know, households pay down debt in the latest monthly release, quite unusual. So, um, you know, we'll be watching closely in China to see if this is the beginning of a household deleveraging phase and, and, a, and a trend of deeper weakness in the property market and in the general economy. But the policymakers in China are fairly constrained. Um, we do expect some easing on the margin of monetary policy, of regulatory policy. But uh, you know, the idea of the, the Chinese going wholesale uh, you know, in on uh, stimulating growth is just, we think, not in the cards because of the years and years of debt-driven uh, you know, growth that has now left them with uh, significant imbalances in terms of high levels of leverage across the economy. Well, it sounds like a, a lot of pressures are building in a lot of different parts of global markets and global economies, and uh, it's going to be a, a, a bumpy couple of quarters. That's right. It's, you know, it's a, it's a challenging time uh, for sure. And I think you know, we see that reflected in, in a high level of volatility across financial markets. You know, I think it's you know, we're really left now with some some interesting opportunities, Jay. So just to close on that, you know, what are what are the final messages or, you know, words that you would you know share with our listeners about these opportunities in the markets? Well, I think the, the key message I would want to leave is that there's income in fixed income again. And we're also at a point in the cycle where uh, duration is likely to perform much better in the next one to two years than it has in the past couple of years. Um, as we discussed, we're, we're seeing a whole host of signs that we're getting later in the expansion. A lot of Fed hawkishness is now priced into the yield curve. And with treasury yields in the three and a quarter to three and a half percent zone uh, and uh, you know, high quality credit spreads having widened meaningfully this year, you know, we, can, we can find some really attractive high quality, longer duration assets in with yields in the 5%, 6% range. And uh, those opportunities have been very few and far between in the last 15 some odd years. So we think it's a really opportune time 
to uh, to add to fixed income uh, to stay up in quality and uh, and to position for what we think will be you know a much better outlook for fixed income total returns in the in the future. Well, thank you so much for your time, Brian. I know it's very busy uh, for uh, for everyone at the firm nowadays. So uh, again, really appreciate it, and uh, hope you'll come again and visit with us soon. Great, thanks for having me, Jay. My thanks once again to Brian Smedley. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our podcast. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. And if you have a question for any of our guests on Macro Markets, just send us an email at macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the following affiliated investment management businesses. 
Guggenheim Partners Investment Management LLC, Security Investors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC, Guggenheim Funds Investment Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Partners Advisors LLC, Guggenheim Corporate Funding LLC, Guggenheim Partners Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Fund Management Europe Limited, Guggenheim Partners Japan Limited, GS Gamma Advisors LLC, and Guggenheim Partners India Management.